Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to our event today, marking the 40th anniversary of the U.S. Department of Education opening its doors. I'm Lindsay Burke, and I direct our Center for Education Policy at the Heritage Foundation. And we're delighted that you could all join us today. We have an excellent lineup of scholars to talk about the impact of the agency and to contemplate what, if any, future the agency should have. And we're looking forward a little bit later to taking your questions as well. But before we do that, just a few quick housekeeping notes. First, as we're speaking, please submit your questions. There's a question box there on your screen that you'll see. If you would, identify your name and organization when you do ask a question in that question box. And finally, we are recording this event and it will be made available on heritage.org about 48 hours after the event concludes. And before we get started, I would like you to take just 15 seconds and answer this quick poll. On average, how much of each state's K-12 budget do you think comes from Washington? Great. And I'll be introducing our other panelists shortly, but before I do that, I wanted to take a few minutes to talk about the history of the Federal Department of Education. As you're all aware, education did not gain cabinet level agency status until 1980. And prior to its establishment, federal education programs, which had grown significantly under the Lyndon Johnson administration as a result of his war on poverty, were housed at the Department of Health, Education and Welfare, HEW. As you're also all aware, Education is not an enumerated power of the federal government. So how did we end up with a cabinet level agency dedicated to education? So a quick history, I would argue that the creation of the Department of Education cannot be understood without understanding the stated goals of the National Education Association, the teachers union. The NEA had long pushed for the creation of a federal Department of Education. And around the mid 20th century, it was really growing in size and numbers and ultimately in its influence in Washington. And by the time Jimmy Carter was running for president, the NEA secured a speech from Vice, president, Vice Presidential Candidate Walter Mondale at their 1976 annual meeting. And it's interesting, speaking at that meeting, Mondale promised the NEA that a Carter administration would establish a standalone cabinet level agency for education. Mondale's brother was actually an NEA official at the time and Mondale's selection as Carter's running mate really all but sealed the deal for the organization's support of the Carter campaign. And that year, the NEA decided to issue its first presidential endorsement, endorsing Jimmy Carter for president. Carter, of course, was elected, but it still took a few years after his election to fulfill his promise. In his 1978 State of the Union address, however, Carter proclaimed that it's time to take another major step by creating a separate Department of Education. And with that pronouncement at that point, the congressional effort really began in earnest. Now, there were heated arguments for and against the creation of a cabinet level agency for education at the time. Proponents argued that the United States was just one of only a handful of countries throughout the world that did not have a cabinet level department of education or an education ministry. Proponents also argued that a new federal agency would increase efficiency and increase taxpayer savings by 
reducing overlap and duplication in existing federal programs. What I find interesting is that this push came in the years following the massive increases in federal involvement and spending on education programs that were precipitated during the Johnson administration. But what's interesting is that the Carter administration argued that a cabinet level education department was needed because federal programs had failed during the Great Society to address the issues that they were supposed to address. Alter how the role of the federal government was perceived with respect to education. So broadly, those are the arguments in favor, but there were many, many arguments against establishing a cabinet level agency for education at the time. In fact, a member of the Carter administration's own transition team working on department reorganization ahead of inauguration day had argued that, quote, an education secretary would not command the president's attention, that a powerful HEW, health, education, and welfare secretary would be more effective for education. Others in the administration, the Carter administration, argued that maintaining education within HEW was a better means of coordinating programs for the poor, since it was already coordinating health programs. And Carter also faced opposition with the Office of Management. And from those who just broadly thought that education should be a low priority for a president. The other thing that is interesting about these fights was the position of the American Federation of Teachers, the rival union to the NEA. The AFT was actually against the creation of the department because they feared that the department would be captured by the more powerful NEA. But more fundamentally, really was the belief among all Americans that education was and is rightfully a state and local issue. Opponents to the new agency expressed concern that the policies preferred in Washington would be levied on the entire country. And there was a growing sense that the effort would simply increase federal control over state and local issues of education. So ultimately, the battle over whether there should be a standalone cabinet level Department of Education was won by the newly powerful NEA at the time. President Carter signed into law the Department of Education Organization Act on October 17, 1979, and then the department officially opened its doors 40 years ago today, on May 4, 1980. So with that history, uh, as a backdrop, it is my pleasure to introduce our other distinguished panelists today. First, we'll hear from Dr. Martin West, who is Professor of Education at the Harvard Graduate School of Education and a Faculty Re Research Fellow at the National Bureau of Economic Research. Then we'll hear from Dr. Joshua Dunn, who is Professor and Chair of the Department of Political Science at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs. And then finally, we'll hear from my colleague, Jonathan Butcher, who is Senior Policy Analyst in the Center for Education Policy here at the Heritage Foundation. And with that, I will turn it over to Dr. West. Thanks, Lindsay. And uh, thank you for that introduction. And thanks to you and Jonathan for the opportunity to participate in today's event. I want to spend my eight minutes or so arguing that at the end of the day, focusing on the status of the Department of Education, that is, whether it's a cabinet level agency or an office within the Department of Health and Human Services is a bit of a distraction from the core question of the appropriate role of the federal government in American education. That said, there's a lot that I really appreciate in the paper that you and Jonathan are publishing today calling for the department's elimination. So let me start out with what I see as some of the highlights of that paper and the account of the department's creation and existence that you provide. First, I really appreciate the insightful and revealing narrative that you provide of the politics surrounding the agency's creation, a narrative that rightly emphasizes the role of the commitment Carter made to the National Education Association. When I teach on this episode to my students at Harvard, they're often surprised to learn that many liberal voices in the nation at the time, ranging from the 
New York Times editorial board to Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan were opposed to Carter's proposed department. And this opposition ultimately mattered because to the extent that there was a policy rationale for the creation of the department, it was to bring together various federal programs related to education that were scattered across the federal bureaucracy. But due to this opposition, that simply didn't occur. And due to the commitment that Carter had made, the administration felt like they had to move forward nonetheless. Uh, and so what had been the Office of Education within the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare was elevated, but it didn't notably expand. So programs like Head Start, the National School Lunch Program, the National Science Foundation's education programs, and many more remained in their current homes. So uh, there actually was not much of a transformation from a policy perspective, nor even a consolidation or reduction of fragmentation in terms of bureaucratic reorganization when the department was created. The second point that I think the paper makes quite convincingly is that the federal government's influence in American K-12 education in particular vastly exceeds its financial role. So for those in the audience who weren't sure of the answer to the question, uh, the correct answer to the share of state education budgets in K-12 that come from the federal government is about eight and a half percent. Nonetheless, I think it's right to say that the federal footprint in American education is far greater than that. Uh, the paper nicely tells the story of what was Title V of the Elementary and Secondary Education Act passed in 1965, which was uh, essentially an effort by the federal government to build up state education agencies such that they would be in a position to ensure that school districts were in compliance with the requirements attached to federal funding streams. And you see the legacy of that approach today uh, where you have the organization charts of state education agencies largely mirroring the major federal funding streams. So uh, this footprint is greater than the financial role would suggest. The third thing that I appreciate about the uh, paper is that uh, unlike many calls to eliminate the department, which emerge from time to time, Lindsay and Jonathan's proposal includes specific and substantial changes in federal policy and spending levels. So oftentimes you hear people saying, let's eliminate the Department of Education, but then they don't actually follow through and say, I think we should reduce the federal role in K-12 education. It's largely a symbolic gesture. But Lindsay and Jonathan do include uh, notably the elimination of the two largest federal funding programs in K-12, Title I and the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. But the boldness of this proposal is tempered by the recognition that you would need to phase in those financial changes gradually over a 10-year period. The proposal is also tempered by a clear recognition of the importance of and the need to find a home for important federal responsibilities like enforcing civil rights, funding education research and development, and operating a system of grants and loans to support post-secondary education, those would need to continue and so you need to find a home in other federal agencies. Now, my own view of the appropriate federal role in American education is a bit more expansive than what Lindsay and Jonathan have in mind, as I do think the federal government should provide financial support for the education of low-income students and students with disabilities, which is the ostensible purpose of Title I and the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. And in my view, it should do this in a way that ameliorates rather than aggravates differences in financial capacity across states, which is not the case today. So my own focus would be on revising the funding formula and easing the compliance burden associated with them. Uh, but I certainly respect Lindsay and Jonathan's perspective and think we could have a constructive uh, debate. I guess what I question is whether it's all that constructive though to situate that discussion within a debate over the department's status, a debate that's politically quite fraught and easily demagogued. One reason I doubt that is that as I look at the history of the federal role in education, I don't see an inflection point with the creation of the department in 1980. Rather, the real step changes in terms of funding and policy influence came with the Elementary and Secondary Education Act in 1965, with the Educating All Handicapped Children Act in 1975, 
and later with No Child Left Behind in 2001. The first two of those laws predate the department, and I'm not sure that the third happened because of it. And the second reason I'm not sure it's useful to situate the debate over the federal role within a debate over the department is that there just isn't very much in the way of popular support for eliminating the department. So ultimately, I think the wiser course of action for conservatives may be to take cues from Ronald Reagan, who came into office committing to correcting what he called Carter's mistake, but ultimately saw that he didn't have the support in Congress to do so and decided to try to uh, rein in the federal role, uh, which he succeeded in doing to some extent in his first administration, and then using the federal role via the bully pulpit under a secretary of education named William Bennett to promote conservative policies and priorities. So uh, I will stop there and uh, look forward to the conversation at the end of the session. Great. Well, thank you, Dr. West. Really appreciate all of those comments. Appreciate the very constructive feedback to a uh, pretty, uh, I would say, maybe perhaps controversial proposal that, that we're putting out there. So really appreciate that. And, you know, I, I think that you're, you're absolutely right that the major inflection point for federal intervention in education really did start in 1965 with the war on poverty with Lyndon Johnson's Great Society programs, where he said a third of the war on poverty would be fought in the classrooms of America. So that was certainly the starting point. Uh, shameless plug, if you want to learn more, we have a book uh, to that effect called The Not-So-Great Society that you can get on heritage.org. With that, I will now turn it over to Dr. Joshua Dunn, who again is professor and chair of the Department of Political Science at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs. Great. Thank you so much, Lindsay. It's really an honor to be with you all today and have the opportunity to say a little bit about your paper and provide some further thoughts on the Department of Education and its future. Um, I do think one of the great uh, things about your, your paper with Jonathan is that it reminds us that in the American system, the default setting should be local control. Uh, and by centralizing policy, you actually get often worse policy. You deprive of us, uh, of one of the benefits of federalism, that's having states serve as laboratory. But I also think there's something else, is that uh, education is such a fundamentally local activity that the more you centralize it, you deprive citizens of the opportunity to create habits that are actually necessary for, uh, for good citizenship. And education is, has long been uh, an avenue for citizen en engagement. And that with policy being more and more dictated from Washington, it uh, once again deprives citizens of this, uh, of this opportunity. I think there's something else that uh, should be mentioned uh, as a preparatory comment, which is that with education, uh, self-interest uh, actually solves many problems with education. And so the impulse for centralization is one that I've never quite understood. Uh, most people, uh, there are exceptions to this, but most people don't want their children to be ignorant. And so by decentralizing education policy, allowing people to craft education systems that work for their, for, uh, for their communities, you're more likely to end up uh, with, with better results. There are, of course, some tragic circumstances where, where that is not the case. Uh, I also like the fact that you mentioned that part of the motivation for the creation of the Department of Education was the fact that many of the Great Society programs failed. And so then the argument was, well, we need to uh, double down on our, on our commitment, reminding us once again that sometimes with government, nothing succeeds so much as failure. So I want to say a few things uh, about the Department of Education that do point in the opposite direction uh, from what Marty said, which is that I, I have concerns that without dissolving the Department of Education, there's no way of re actually reforming it. I think that you see with the Department of Ed Education that it has developed several norms that are corrosive of both the rule of law and of good policy. And so then without, uh, dissolving it, uh, eliminating it, transferring many of its functions as you recommend in your paper that you aren't actually going to solve the problem. So the two dangerous practices that I want to refer to are policy making by waivers and by dear colleague letters. Uh, these practices, which have developed significantly and expanded over the last 20 to 30 years, uh, they create confusion, there's a lack of transparency with them, and then they undermine the legitimacy of the policies themselves. 
Now, it was encouraging to hear Secretary DeVos announce when she became Secretary of Education that the era of rule by letter is over. I think there's one problem with that. As we all know, administrations come and go, but agencies remain. So first, let me say a little bit about uh, rule by waiver. Uh, the use of waivers dispensed uh, by the Secretary of Education really increased with No Child Left Behind, starting with Secretary Spellings. Uh, you could argue that these waivers were a necessary attempt to prevent an unworkable statute from just capsizing into complete disaster. Uh, however, I think what we've witnessed with the use of waivers is, is that they just metastasized into policymaking by other means. So in 2011, you saw Secretary Duncan issuing waivers on a much broader scale and scope than anything done by Secretary Spellings. In all, he issued over 43 waivers to states and to the District of Columbia. Uh, Columbia. Uh, so to obtain relief from No Child Left Behind's requirement, he would grant waivers, but only if states met several conditions. Now, you can go through those conditions, but I think the effect of those conditions was to essentially replace the legislative framework of No Child Left Behind with something entirely different. And for the first time, you really had the federal government dictating the curricular content and methods of teacher evaluation to states. Essentially, what Duncan was doing was requiring states to adopt Common Core or some close facsimile of it. The problem was, it was that No Child Left Behind, I think any reasonable reading of No Child Left Behind, explicitly forbid imposing those kinds of requirements. Uh, and I think we saw with, uh, with that era of waivers under No Child Left Behind that it created deep problems and, and, uh, and animosity uh, in the states. Now, I think the more significant problem would be the use of Dear Colleague letters. Now, I think most in the audience are probably aware of these, but it's the practice of the Office for Civil Rights in the Department of Education to evade notice and comment rulemaking and to create new policies under the guise of clarifying existing law. It, this really became standard operating procedure for the Office for Civil Rights by the early 1990s. Now, I think there are many problems with this, and I think that this, this practice is so embedded in the Office for Civil Rights, once again, that it, it might be impossible to eliminate it other than by simply moving the Office of Civil Rights to the Department of Justice, as you recommend in, in your paper. So here are some of the problems. The first is that the practice clearly violates the Administra Administrative Procedures Act. It's obvious that OCR is simply trying to avoid the rulemaking requirements of the, uh, of the APA. There are practical problems, though. It leads to poorly crafted public policy. I think that you can look at several of the most significant Dear Colleague letters uh, of the last 10 years. The sexual misconduct Dear Colleague letter from 2011. What have we witnessed with that? Uh, universities that have been obligated to apply the, this new standard, this new policy that was created by the Office for Civil Rights, have now been sued dozens, perhaps hundreds of times, at a great loss to themselves, but they're really trapped in an unwinnable situation uh, where that they either obey uh, the Office for Civil Rights or they risk being sued. And they keep losing in, in court now. And of course, we're waiting uh, for potentially new regulations any day, perhaps, uh, from uh, Sec uh, Secretary DeVos. Then think about the school discipline, uh, dear colleague, letter of 2014. This essentially opposed the disparate impact standard on school discipline policies for all schools and school districts in the country. Uh, what we've witnessed with that is that teachers, surveys by teachers' unions, uh, indicate that they feel their classrooms are less safe than they were before and that it's actually degraded their ability to be effective teachers and provide a decent education for their students. Then you have the school finance DCL of 2014. And this was a, a, a dear colleague letter that said that any difference in funding uh, could trigger an o, uh, OCR in, investigation. And here, if you just read the Dear Colleague letter, you just see it wandering deep into the swamps of supervising and managing schools. So it said that it would consider a variety of factors that might affect educational outcomes, including among many others, paint, lockers, carpets, heating and air conditioning, laboratory facilities, performing arts spaces, library resources, audiovisual equipment, availability of laptops and tablets, access to Wi-Fi hotspots, graphing calculators, extracurricular activities, and on and on and on. Uh, and then, of course, you have the transgender student DCL of 2016. Of course, these have largely been revoked by the current Secretary of Education, but that's going to point to another problem, which I'll mention in just a minute. 
A third problem that I think you see with this uh, rule by dear colleague letters that you end up with expensive and deeply punitive uh, unjustifiable enforcement. Now officially the Office for Civil Rights has one enforcement mechanism that's to cut off federal funds. Uh, however, they never do this and they haven't done it since the late 1960s or even tried to do it since the 1960s. They've never actually even brought a funding cutoff procedure under Title IX. It's counterproductive and politically dangerous by Cutting off federal funds, you hurt the students you're trying to help and you risk backlash from members of Congress. So instead, OCR has developed other enforcement mechanisms, unofficial ones. These have been described by Shep Melnick of Boston College as harass and colonize. The goal is through very public uh, investigations. You uh, try to embarrass schools and universities. Uh, and then you also investigate the entire organization, not just the part of the organization that allegedly has fallen afoul, afoul of o o OCR's policies. So the process becomes the punishment. And then what you also do is you force schools to create offices devoted to continuing OCR's preferred policies, regardless of what new administrations might do. A fourth problem is that through this process, you end up creating what are in essence secret laws. So OCR will go and invest a school or a, uh, investigate a school or a school district. And the, pro the outcome of that is uh, uh, a compliance agreement or settlement. Now, most of the time, these compliance agreements are hidden from public, public view, but they are treated with precedential authority by OCR. Now, interestingly, if you actually go to a regional office of the Office for Civil Rights and ask for their settlement, uh, settlement uh, agreements, they'll ask you, which ones do you want? That then puts you in a very difficult position because you don't know which ones there are because they don't publish them. The final problem is this creates deeply uncertain public policy. Once again, you change administrations and you change policy as we've witnessed just with this administration. Now, you can go back to the American founders, James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, widely, they all regarded the mutability of the law as being calamitous, a corrosive of the, of the, of the rule of law itself. So to conclude, I can't be sure that moving OCR to the Department of Justice's Office of Civil Rights will necessarily make things better, but I'm quite certain that it could not make things worse. Thank you. Great. Thank you, Dr. Don. That was great. I, I think I'm going to think about uh, the process becoming the punishment for a long time. That was well said. Thank you uh, as well for your view. It's very much appreciated. And that was a fantastic overview of the many ways in which we see uh, the agency at the federal level really have its tentacles in local school policy. And now finally, we'll hear from Jonathan Butcher, who again is Senior Policy Analyst in the Center for Education Policy here at Heritage. Jonathan? Great, thank you, Lindsay, very much. And thank you to everyone who has joined us. I uh, wanted to remind everyone just quickly to uh, please submit your questions in the questions tab there on your screen. We've gotten several uh, great ones already, and so uh, please continue to use that uh, question box over there, and we will be getting to those in, in just a few minutes. So uh, to wrap up, and, and thank you for, to Dr. West and Dr. Dunn for your comments. And so I'm going to um, zoom in for a moment here, and we're going to offer a little story that's going to help to explain uh, what uh, Dr. West and Dr. Don were talking about. So first, uh, as Dr. West was saying, this issue of state departments of education, I think that if you asked the average taxpayer what they knew about their local department of education, uh, I think they wouldn't be able to tell you very much about what the actual functions are. I think it might be, I think it's safe to assume that because, um, uh, you know, the a journal that Dr. West and, and Dr. Dunn are involved in, Education Next, does a survey every year. And one of their questions asks how much uh, we spend per child around the country. And um, in the responses, it's pretty clear that people don't know. And they're off by a pretty wide margin. We're talking about uh, $6,000, I think, uh, on, on average of, of uh, how far they, they get it wrong. Um, we spend uh, today well over $15,000 uh, per student. We're at about 15, nearly 15 and a half when you take all total spending per child uh, together. That's a pretty big number. But these state agencies, uh, as Dr. West said, the U.S. Department of Education, or before its creation, uh, with the elementary and, uh, uh, and elementary and education, second, uh, elementary and secondary education act, uh, before the agency was even created, 
there was essentially seed money that was given to create these state offices. And in research that I did a couple of years ago, uh, approximately half, about 41% of the salaries of people who work at these state agencies are paid with federal money. So when we say that the US Department of Education and the increasing federal footprint has a taken a bureaucratic toll on local schools and local school processes, that's this is what it looks like. What it looks like is that you have Washington paying for the salaries of people who work at state agencies to do just federal work and reporting. And some of this, of course, is uh, results in schools doing the actual reporting and sending the information you know, through the agency back to Washington. So you have this process that Washington has created by paying for a bureaucratic process. So let me add one other detail um, before we talk about what the future of the agency should look like. And that is that um, for those that follow the education debates, they may know that the long-term, the best long-term indicators that we have of student success show that 17-year-olds are scoring about the same in math and reading today as they were in 1970. So the scores, the measures that we have to show student progress, they have not changed and it's about the same. Along the same lines, as we have data going back even further, the gap between students from uh, wealthier families and students from lower income families Research from Paul Peterson and Eric Hanushek and their co-authors has found that that gap between those student groups has not changed over that time either. So that means that 17-year-olds on average are scoring about the same as they have since the early 1970s. The achievement gap has also remained unchanged for decades. Now, curiously, high school graduation rates have actually gone up. And they've gone up uh, somewhat significantly over the past 15 to 20 years in particular. So this means a couple of things. This means that Washington, uh, to the extent that they have a role in, uh, in uh, policies that concern how schools operate, and we've covered a lot of those in the remarks so far, they have not lined up what students are learning with the outcomes that are coming out of schools. So we haven't, we haven't found some sort of, of consistent indicator and for two, we now, have, uh, we now have a problem. We have a problem because we don't know what to make of high school graduation rates. And parents should be suspicious because as we see uh, the rates of people completing college in even six years, and now it's even being measured by some in eight years, uh, those numbers are not encouraging. So we have a process by which we're measuring students leaving high school, but then not able to finish college in what was traditionally thought to be the amount of time that you would go to college for. You thought you would go to college for four years and finish. So, uh, so this sort of puts some details on, on what's been said so far about uh, the bureaucracy and what that means for state agencies, as well as what, um, what effect, if any, the federal policies have had on student achievement. And I think it, um, it can safely be said to be at least confusing right, or not clear. So what do we do? Uh, what does the way forward look like? Well, it has, as has been uh, uh, alluded to so far, we are, tr we are trying to set a vision. What we want is to set a vision for a deliberate, detail-oriented process to review the federal agency, to remove the duplicative and ineffective programs, and to set it on a course so that the main responsibilities for um, providing for children from low-income families, especially children who have special needs and their services can be moved to uh, states and that states can uh, have that um, decision-making authority about what is best for those students, uh, that states don't have to worry about Washington looking over their shoulder, as Dr. Dunn was alluding to just a moment ago, uh, with dear colleague letters. So uh, why now? Isn't this a bit of an odd time to be talking about closing down the department in the midst of um, this pandemic, uh, as well as a pretty sizable um, amounts of money coming from Washington and going to both K-12 schools and colleges right now? And I actually think that this is the right time. And in fact, there's no better time to be talking about the effective way for schools to be using their resources uh, than when those resources are being increased and when those when the use of that money 
is urgent right now as schools are trying to do things different than what they had done before. Uh, as schools move to online instruction, I would say that uh, this administration, uh, many of their policies, uh, I think have been good steps forward. Uh, rescinding the 2014 Dear Colleague letter that Dr. Dunn was, was talking about dealing with school discipline, for one. Washington should not be deciding what is the best way to, for schools to handle school safety or to handle student discipline. Um, by the same token, uh, I think that uh, this administration, in their first step, once schools began to close, one of the first thing they did was issue uh, statements to schools that said um, that they should try, they should attempt to move to online instruction uh, and not be afraid that the agency would come back to them and talk about rules regarding equity or rules regarding the way that um, services must be provided to children with special needs. Not because those rules are not important, they're very, very much important, but because that schools are going to have to try things that perhaps they hadn't tried before. And the department needed to let them know that it was okay for them to think outside the box now, and it was okay for them to try to reach students because it was so essential. And so what would it mean to not have the agency? It would mean that that uh, intermediary process of telling schools that they don't have to worry about the rules in this uh, urgent time, we would just remove that step. Schools should not have to turn around and look for Washington for approval to do the right thing. They should not have to be looking for uh, instruction about how to do the right thing by their students, right? As we talk about what it means for uh, local schools and educators to have the ability to make choices in their students' best interests, that's, that's what we mean. We mean that this agency and the layers of bureaucracy that it has created, not to mention uh, the substantial evidence that points to um, not having a positive impact on student achievement, removing that intermediate layer between uh, schools and their families, between schools and their students. So again, I'll close with this. Um, some of the uh, proposals to uh, deal with this agency and others that have been introduced over the years uh, should be revisited. There were some uh, dating back as far as the 1970s that called for a review process of the effectiveness of different agencies, not just the Department of Education, obviously, because uh, some of these proposals came before the uh, Department of Ed was even, uh, even around. And so uh, having a process which uh, federal auditors, as the GAO, OMB, anyone that's that's necessary to review the different services they, that the agency uh, provides right now, and then create a path for those responsibilities to be moved to other parts of uh, the federal government. We'll have in our forthcoming paper um, an image and a description of how the how and where those different places, um, uh, what, what they will be. Uh, some of these responsibilities will go to the Department of Health and Human Services. There are some um, equally important uh, responsibilities such as civil rights, such as um, historically black colleges and universities that will need to, um, to be repositioned so that um, the support for those um, services remains, uh, but it does not need to be in an agency that's devoted to, frankly, a myriad of other responsibilities that uh, makes it a very large federal presence uh, that now has its hand in uh, what local schools are doing. So uh, with that, thank you again to those that have joined us. Thank you to our panelists uh, who are here. I'm going to turn it back to Lindsay, uh, who is going to uh, go over the results of our poll uh, that everyone took a few moments ago. Uh, she's going to move us to the question and answer session. And if our uh, panelists, if Dr. West and Dr. Dunn could join us back on the screen, uh, we'll move to the question and answer session uh, next. So, Lindsay, I'll give it back to you. Great. Thanks, Jonathan. Uh, great remarks, great overview, uh, and a very well articulated and thoughtful plan for thinking about how we could actually move toward devolving the department. So thank you for that overview. Uh, we have gotten a, a, quite a few questions in. Uh, I will give away the results of the poll. You're all an incredibly smart audience. 79% of you have correctly identified that the federal government provides just 8.5% of all K-12 education financing. Uh, so very well done. The others were pretty close. Uh, so that really does, in our minds, underscore the fact that uh, this is the time to actually start to think about restoring revenue responsibility to the states for some existing programs and certainly restoring management and control of those programs to the states. 
So I have a lot of uh, great questions. I'll start with this one um, on a report that comes up very often, which is the famous publication, A Nation at Risk. So whoever wants to jump in on this, feel free. But the question is, uh, the publication of A Nation at Risk by the department, was that also an inflection point, directing attention to poor academic outcomes and to Washington as the source of wisdom for correcting it? Um, and didn't it at least set the standards and testing movement in motion, um, especially in 1998, 94, 2002 reauthorizations of ESEA? So it certainly played a major role in launching the standards and accountability movement. Uh, that was perhaps the uh, most central recommendation that uh, the report included. Um, as to whether it in and of itself led to uh, people to look to Washington for answers, that's not as obvious to me, it uh, was obviously a report of the Department of Education. But the first thing that really happened in its wake was the catalyzation of a lot of state level activity uh, and the standards based reform movement in the states. This was a period where uh, the 1981 82 reauthorization of the Elementary and Secondary Education Act had actually devolved some responsibility to the states. Uh, and so uh, I think, you know, I'm not sure that I would directly link a nation at risk to the, uh, the real increase we've seen in the federal role since the turn of the millennium. Great. If anybody else wants to jump in, feel free. Otherwise, I will just editorialize quickly and say that uh, if we're thinking about reports that were really seminal and how we think about federal education policy writ large, something that we have tried to model our proposal on is the 1998 Education at a Crossroads report, another uh, famous, as far as these reports can be, famous education policy report. Uh, but the Crossroads report, which that was a product of a commission that was uh, led really by Representative Hoekstra in 98, its conclusions were uh, incredibly poignant, I think. They ultimately, after interviewing hundreds and hundreds of school leaders and parents and visiting schools across the country, concluded that successful schools were not the product of federal funding and programs, but instead were characterized by involved parents and local control and an emphasis on basic academics and dollars importantly spent in the classroom and not on bureaucracy. And so we took away from that report and producing this report uh, that Heritage will put out imminently. Uh, and the Crossroads report had said, well, if we really wanna think about restoring state and local control of education, we should restore federal involvement in education to that original role that it played, original circa 1867 <laughs> under the Andrew Jackson administration, when it really just serves as a statistics gathering entity. It collected data, on the number of schools and teachers across the country. And so it's sort of in that spirit that we have outlined our proposal for getting us closer uh, to that very limited federal involvement. So couldn't help but uh, talk about another very good federal report since we talked for a minute about a nation at risk. So another question that we have, I, I don't know, this might be uh, Professor Dunn, one that you'll wanna take, but um, question about, um, when Title IX regs, new updated regs, might be released uh, by the department that um, I know folks are eager, eagerly awaiting that, that there's been maybe uh, in some people's minds a bit of a lag. Um, do you know what the holdup might be there? Any thoughts on uh, those new Title IX regulations? Well, sadly, I have no inside information on when those new regulations might, might be released. I, I wish I did. Uh, I keep, you know, hearing people calling for them, uh, and so you know, if I if I had to guess, I would I would certainly say within the next three months before the next academic year begins. But I would also think that uh, maybe even sooner, so that colleges and universities in particular might have some time to uh, reconsider their policies and structure them and their approaches to dealing with accusations of sexual misconduct on campus. So it's not just well, we're going to release them in August and 
take it away now. Uh, I think that that would probably probably be unfair uh, to uh, educational institutions, but that's just kind of my, my working guess. Great, thanks for that. And uh, I should have said earlier, Andrew Johnson, not Andrew Jackson in 1867, if anybody is paying close attention. Uh, great, so moving on, uh, some folks are saying, we have another question uh, from Pennsylvania, I think. Some folks are saying that the next financial bubble to burst is the federal student loan program, uh, the higher education loans that the federal government currently originates in services. In light of COVID-19's effect on higher education, do you think that that timeline has been accelerated at all? Uh, what can be done to reform the federal student loan program? That's a big question. Uh, anybody eager to take that one? Well, I tell you what, I'll, I'll, I'll break the ice. I mean, I, would, I think that it's, it's uh, safe to say that, that the higher education space uh, is one that's going to see some pretty significant disruption with what's happened right now. Um, and, and in particular, because uh, the model that it's built uh, is a um, largely becoming on many campuses a big experience that students go for for many years that involves um, not just going to class. And so now colleges are going to have to look at their bottom lines and they're going to have to revisit this issue of what is what are the essential services that universities are providing. Um, so I think that'll be step one. I mean, I, and I think that would be positive. Obviously, no one no one wants people to lose their jobs. No one wants to see institutions that have been around for 100 years or more have to close down. Um, and so that's you know it's not what, not what we're saying or not what I'm saying. I, I think that what is important now in the higher education world is for schools to look back at uh, ways that they they can um, focus their uh, resources back on instruction, focus it back on the uh, departments that are teaching students, that are leading to degrees. Um, and then I think that we can, um, again, have a, uh, I think it's going to have to be a discussion that takes um, several years about involving the private lending market once again uh, into uh, the college loan side. And I think that's what's been missing. I mean, it's uh, with Washington covering 90 plus percent or underwriting 90 plus percent of of, uh, of financial aid right now, it's, it's important that we get back to thinking uh, about how to get private lending um, as a bigger piece, if not getting Washington completely out of that space. Yeah, I would just say that there's a chance that this crisis might actually increase the federal's role, uh, federal government's role in uh, financing higher education simply because sometimes uh, college is considered a, a counter cyclical. And so if the economy is doing well, people have opportunities outside of higher education, uh, good jobs, good pay, and so they'll take advantage of those. If you are in the middle of a recession or you know, even worse, a depression, which you know we might very well be in, and then there's an easy source of loans available to you, you might take advantage of that and then just try to ride out uh, the, the recession for a while uh, in college or university and then re-enter the, the, the marketplace for a job when things have improved. Yeah, very good. Good. So this is uh, not sure who would want to take this, uh, Dr. West, maybe, but question about rural school funding as well uh, and winding down federal involvement and federal spending on education. Do rural areas draw down a uh, disproportionately high amount of funding from the federal level? Uh, any thoughts on the numbers there and what impact that might have? Yeah, it, it really... Um it varies by state. I can think of some rural states that uh, are actually quite generously funded proportionally, uh, like Wyoming and Vermont, others uh, that receive much less uh, uh, per child or poor low-income child from the federal government. That's because of various quirks in the, uh, in the federal funding formulas that uh, create these inequities across states, which I think actually do deserve a lot of attention. They date back in many cases to the original design of the funding formula in 1965. But once you get something in place, uh, you know uh, the people who benefit from it make it hard to uh, to change. Um, uh, so I don't I don't see rural schools as a constituency that would be sort of disproportionately affected by 
a phase out of uh, of rural programming. I think the where rural schools often suffer as a consequence of federal policy is when there are prescriptive mandates that are oriented towards the concerns and the uh, capacities of larger school systems uh, that then when they're applied to rural schools uh, don't um, uh, are very difficult to uh, comply with in a, a faithful uh, manner that is constructive for serving students. So I think that in my view is the real challenge that rural uh, schools face under federal policy. Great, thank you. So we have a, a question just on broader financing. Um, this is a question that really seems to be about preference. So if we're thinking about devolving uh, federal intervention, federal involvement, whatever we wanna call it in education and really situating funding at a more local level in terms of how families are accessing that funds, this is a question on shifts toward homeschooling or online learning or ESAs, education savings accounts or vouchers. Maybe, I don't know if each of you might wanna to speak to the relative merits of each of those or just thoughts, particularly in this sort of coronavirus pandemic environment that we find ourselves in. What are we seeing uh, in terms of each of those four sectors the impact right now, any long-term impact we might see in the K-12 space as a result of the pandemic that we're now in? So I think one of the things we're seeing in real time is that a lot of private schools are under uh, pressure. Uh, many of their families are struggling financially, uh, struggling to remain enrolled. Uh, the typical private school is not one with a large endowment. Uh, it is very much living hand to mouth. Uh, and, uh, and so I think this is a real concern for those of us who are, uh, who, who want American families to have as many choices as possible. Uh, it's also a concern financially for states because when students shift from private schools into public school systems, that will only aggravate the funding pressures that states will surely be experiencing as a result of, uh, the economic downturn that we are in. So uh, just one initial reaction is I think there's uh, cause for concern. I think those states that do have uh, policies that subsidize private school enrollment, whether via a voucher program or a scholarship tax credit program, need to uh, make sure that their legislatures understand that those programs are money saving rather than money draining uh, from the state's perspective, uh, something that's often not well understood. So I, I think in terms of protecting those programs uh, as being very important as a first reaction. So I think some of it, we're just, we're just gonna have to see what happens this summer. I think that there are gonna be many families who are going to take stock of their experience in response to COVID. And you know, who knows what we'll see. We might see many uh, traditional public school parents decide that, well, this learning at home uh, actually worked out fairly well. They might try to take advantage of online charter schools. Uh, it also could be that some parents had a very difficult time with it and felt that like they weren't getting uh, uh, support that they needed from uh, whatever kind of school they're in. So maybe they'll migrate from a traditional public school to a charter school or to a private school or from a private school to a, to a, to a, to a public school. So yeah, I think it's really too early to know and I suspect that there's going to be some interesting research that'll come uh, come out of this, and probably we'll know, you know, w once people start making final enrollment decisions in July and August, we'll we'll have a have have a better sense of it. Great, Jonathan. I don't know if you had anything to add. Uh, just quickly, I would say that on the issue of choice, I, I was impressed at uh, some of the charter schools, public schools of choice that reacted quickly uh, to the school building closures. I think that some of them, I talked to one in Philadelphia, in fact, uh, serving uh, a low-income area uh, that did adjust pretty quickly while the District of Philadelphia was still trying to decide what to do. And in fact, there were even reports out of Philadelphia saying that they asked teachers the district that is, asked teachers not to move to online instruction until the district could figure out what they wanted to do. And charter schools were, were way ahead in already doing this. Uh, I have a similar story from a school out in Arizona that was doing that. So um, there was an article out of San Diego today that uh, said uh, that the district actually thinks that there's going to be some sort of hybrid 
uh, model that schools will adopt into the fall because some of the social distancing may persist and some of this, you know, the attempts to keep everyone healthy and kind of cope with the, the after effects and, and, and you know, things that are, are still going on with the pandemic. So uh, to the extent that this means that district schools can look to either virtual schools or hybrid schools and take, again, effective being the key word here, take some of the effective practices from those schools and that results in more personalized learning experience and opportunities for students across the education landscape, I think that could be a positive thing, right? I mean, if they're looking at hybrid schools saying, well, this is you know, what we may need to do, uh, let's try and figure out how they did it well and, and, and build off of that. Why then I, you know, I would hope that uh, I would hope that that would mean, you know, that it would be better for students in the fall. Great, thanks. Um, great, we're getting great questions in. Here's a, another tricky one for everybody, so we'll see who wants to uh, to take it if you can. Can you name an important deregulatory action that the Department of Ed has not yet undertaken during the current administration that maybe they should consider? I told you these are not easy questions. We have a very smart audience. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll jump in uh, just real quick, and I, I would say any attention that, that can be paid to the National School Lunch Program, uh, particularly the uh, community eligibility provision, uh, would be worthwhile. Um, you know, CEP of course came through legislation, so not all of it can be just done on a on a regulatory, you know, side. Mm -hmm. But um, the the national lunch program and the school breakfast program have been high priority programs uh, among federal auditors for many years, which means that they are programs that have substantial problem problems with misspending. So um, to the extent that the administration can have a have a close look, um, and this of course would come, you know, through the F, you know FDA and and the uh, uh, USDA and things like that. So it's not necessarily an ed issue, but nevertheless, ed is, is a part of it. Uh, so that would be important. I mean, I think uh, that's that's something that uh, has considerable loss each year. And then, you know, I'll turn it over to the, um, the Professor West and Professor Dunn. But I, I would just, you know, remind folks that as more money is being distributed to schools right now, um, this this issue of, of oversight and making sure that inspectors general at the district level, state level, even at the federal level, make sure that the money is being used for students' welfare is important. Um, for those looking for um, a case study in this, there's a new movie on HBO called Bad Education, starring Hugh Jackman, which is a pretty sordid tale of how a district can take money meant for students and, and misspend it to a pretty flamboyant and high degree. And so, uh, you know, while no, this doesn't happen everywhere, but it shouldn't happen everywhere. And the places where it does happen, um, it's money that could go to teacher salaries. It's money that could be used for instruction. So, you know, as we're looking at sizable bailouts and sizable stimulus spending coming, um, making sure this money is being used well and uh, the oversight is strong is, uh, is important. I'll mention one positive development recently, which was the extension to districts of flexibility with respect to their ability to carry over Title I funding from this year mm -hmm. into next year, something they typically are not able to do. Uh, I think the department, to its credit, was very proactive in realizing that many districts were underspending right now, uh, but are not going to be in a position to uh, do what they want next year. And so that's the type of move that I think uh, is, it should be praised. Uh, I, in thinking about the, the uh, viewer's question, I think, I think of some of the uh, opportunities on, for simplification in higher ed, uh, the financial aid application uh, uh, process in particular. Uh, there are some legal barriers uh, there as well uh, that would require uh, congressional action via reauthorization of the Higher Education Act, but I think uh, anything the department can do to uh, decrease the uh, sludge that students have to go through in order to uh, enroll in college would be uh, helpful. I don't really have, I mean, I guess with the theme of higher education, I do think to whatever extent, again, following Marty, that they can reduce the regulatory burden on colleges and much of that can then also come through their association uh, with accrediting agencies, uh, which in higher education are just extremely difficult to work with. But many of the mandates that they deal with come down from 
uh, the Department of Education and some of the more onerous ones that uh, universities find it most difficult to comply with, and faculty as well, uh, have really come from the Department of Education. Yeah, that, that's great. And that is actually a uh, forthcoming webinar, you heard it here first, that we're thinking about doing. How do we reconceptualize accreditation and response to the current moment in time in which we find ourselves to make higher education both uh, solvent moving forward and uh, affordable for taxpayers and students alike. So we have covered a lot today. I really appreciate everybody hanging with us and I appreciate each and every one of you joining us today. Uh, Dr. West, Dr. Dunn, uh, Mr. Butcher, thank you for joining us and having a, a good conversation, I think a thoughtful conversation the pros and cons about devolving the Department of Education. Um, I know not everybody on our panel agrees, and as Jonathan mentioned earlier, this is the plan that we uh, are putting out this afternoon that does in fact call for eliminating the department status as a cabinet level agency in order to restore state and local and ultimately parental control of education. So I hope you'll read that paper. We'll be sending it around after the webinar, and I hope you will join us again soon for our next education webinar. Thank you for joining us and thanks again to our panelists. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank right, you, John. Thank you.